Chapter Fourteen of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Fourteen. Eliot's Pulpit. Our Sundays at Blythedale were not ordinarily kept with such rigid observance as might have befitted the descendants of the pilgrims, whose high enterprise, as we sometimes flattered ourselves, we had taken up, and were carrying it onward and aloft to a point which they never dreamed of attaining. On that hallowed day, it is true, we rested from our labors. Our oxen, relieved from their weekday yoke, roamed at large through the pasture, each yoke-fellow, however, keeping close beside his mate, and continuing to acknowledge, from the force of habit and sluggish sympathy, the union which the taskmaster had imposed for his own hard ends. As for us human yoke-fellows, chosen companions of toil, whose hoes had clinked together throughout the week, we wandered off in various directions to enjoy our interval of repose. Some, I believe, went devoutly to the village church. Others, it may be, ascended a city or a country pulpit, wearing the clerical robe with so much dignity that you would scarcely have suspected the yeoman's frock to have been flung off only since milking time. Others took long rambles among the rustic lanes and by-paths, pausing to look at black old farmhouses with their sloping roofs, and at the modern cottage, so like a plaything that it seemed as if real joy or sorrow could have no scope within, and at the more pretending villa, with its range of wooden columns supporting the needless insolence of a great portico. Some betook themselves into the wide, dusky barn, and lay there for hours together on the odorous hay, while the sunstreaks and the shadows strove together, these to make the barn solemn, those to make it cheerful, and both were conquerors, and the swallows twittered a cheery anthem, flashing into sight or vanishing as they darted to and fro among the golden rules of sunshine, and others went a little way into the woods and threw themselves on Mother Earth, pillowing their heads on a heap of moss, the green decay of an old log, and dropping asleep the bumblebees and mosquitoes sang and buzzed about their ears, causing the slumberers to twitch and start without awaking. With Hollingsworth, Zenobia, Priscilla, and myself, it grew to be accustomed to spend the Sabbath afternoon at a certain rock. It was known to us under the name of Eliot's Pulpit, from a tradition that the venerable Apostle Eliot had preached there two centuries gone by to an Indian auditory. The old pine forest, through which the Apostle's voice was wont to sound, had fallen an immemorial time ago, but the soil, being of the rudest and most broken surface, had apparently never been brought under tillage. Other growths, maple and beech and birch, had succeeded to the primeval trees, so that it was still as wild a tract of woodland as the great-great-great-great-grandson of one of Eliot's Indians, had any such posterity been in existence, could have desired for the sight and shelter of his wigwam. 
These aftergrowths indeed lose the stately solemnity of the original forest. If left in due neglect, however, they run into an entanglement of softer wildness, among the rustling leaves of which the sun can scatter cheerfulness, as it never could among the dark-browed pines. The rock itself rose some twenty or thirty feet, a shattered granite boulder or heap of boulders, with an irregular outline and many fissures, out of which sprang shrubs, bushes, and even trees, as if the scanty soil within those crevices were sweeter to their roots than any other earth. At the base of the pulpit the broken boulders inclined towards each other, so as to form a shallow cave, within which our little party had sometimes found protection from a summer shower. On the threshold, or just across it, grew a tuft of pale columbines in their season, and violets, sad and shadowy recluses, such as Priscilla was when we first knew her. Children of the sun, who had never seen their father, but dwelt among damp mosses, though not akin to them. At the summit the rock was overshadowed by the canopy of a birch-tree, which served as a sounding-board for the pulpit. Beneath this shade, with my eyes of sense half shut and those of the imagination widely opened, I used to see the holy apostle of the Indians with the sunlight flickering down upon him through the leaves, and glorifying his figure as with the half-perceptible glow of a transfiguration. I the more minutely describe the rock and this little Sabbath solitude, because Hollingsworth, at our solicitation, often ascended Eliot's pulpit, and not exactly preached, but talked to us, his few disciples, in a strain that rose and fell as naturally as the wind's breath among the leaves of the birch-tree. No other speech of man has ever moved me like some of those discourses. It seemed most pitiful, a positive calamity to the world, that a treasury of golden thoughts should thus be scattered by the liberal handful down among us three, when a thousand hearers might have been the richer for them, and Hollingsworth the richer likewise by the sympathy of the multitudes. After speaking much or little as might happen, he would descend from his grey pulpit and generally fling himself at full length on the ground face downward. Meanwhile we talked around him on such topics as were suggested by the discourse. Since her interview with Westervelt, Zenobia's continual inequalities of temper had been rather difficult for her friends to bear. On the first Sunday after that incident, when Hollingsworth had clambered down from Eliot's pulpit, she declaimed with great earnestness and passion, nothing short of anger, on the injustice which the world did to women, and equally to itself, by not allowing them in freedom and honour, and with the fullest welcome, their natural utterance in public. "'It shall not always be so,' cried she. "'If I live another year I will lift up my own voice in behalf of woman's wider liberty.' She perhaps saw me smile. "'What matter of ridicule do you find in this, Miles Coverdale?' exclaimed Zenobia, with a flash of anger in her eyes. "'That smile, permit me to say, makes me suspicious of a low tone of feeling and shallow thought.' 
It is my belief, yes, and my prophecy, should I die before it happens, that when my sex shall achieve its rights, there will be ten eloquent women where there is now one eloquent man. Thus far no woman in the world has ever spoken out her whole heart and her whole mind. The mistrust and disapproval of the vast bulk of society throttles us as with two gigantic hands at our throats. We mumble a few weak words and leave a thousand better ones unsaid. You let us write a little, it is true, on a limited range of subjects, but the pen is not for woman. Her power is too natural and immediate. It is with the living voice alone that she can compel the world to recognize the light of her intellect and the depth of her heart. Now, though I could not well say so to Zenobia, I had not smiled from any unworthy estimate of woman, or in denial of the claims which she is beginning to put forth. What amused and puzzled me was the fact that women, however intellectually superior, so seldom disquiet themselves about the rights or wrongs of their sex, unless their own individual affections chance to lie in idleness or to be ill at ease. They are not natural reformers, but become such by the pressure of exceptional misfortune. I could measure Zenobia's inward trouble by the animosity with which she now took up the general quarrel of woman against man. I will give you leave, Zenobia, replied I, to fling your utmost scorn upon me if you ever hear me utter a sentiment unfavorable to the widest liberty which woman has yet dreamed of. I would give her all she asks, and add a great deal more, which she will not be the party to demand, but which men, if they were generous and wise, would grant of their own free motion. For instance, I should love dearly, for the next thousand years at least, to have all government devolve into the hands of women. I hate to be ruled by my own sex. It excites my jealousy and wounds my pride. It is the iron sway of bodily force which abases us in our compelled submission. But how sweet the free, generous courtesy with which I would kneel before a woman ruler! Yes, if she were young and beautiful, said Zenobia, laughing, but how if she were sixty and a fright? Ah, it is you that rate womanhood low, said I, but let me go on. I have never found it possible to suffer a bearded priest so near my heart and conscience as to do me any spiritual good. I blush at the very thought. Oh, in the better order of things, heaven grant that the ministry of souls may be left in charge of women. The gates of the blessed city will be thronged with the multitude that enter in when that day comes. The task belongs to woman. God meant it for her. He has endowed her with the religious sentiment in its utmost depth and purity, refined from that gross intellectual alloy with which every masculine theologist, save only one, who merely veiled himself in mortal and masculine shape, but was in truth divine, has been prone to mingle it. I have always envied the Catholics their faith in that sweet sacred virgin mother who stands between them and the deity, intercepting somewhat of his awful splendor, but permitting his love to stream upon the worshipper more intelligibly to human comprehension through the medium of a woman's tenderness. Have I not said enough, Zenobia? 
"'I cannot think that this is true,' observed Priscilla, who had been gazing at me with great disapproving eyes, "'and I am sure I do not wish it to be true.' "'Poor child!' exclaimed Zenobia rather contemptuously. "'She is the type of womanhood such as man has spent centuries in making it. He is never content unless he can degrade himself by stooping towards what he loves.' In denying us our rights, he betrays even more blindness to his own interest than profligate disregard of ours. "'Is this true?' asked Priscilla with simplicity, turning to Hollingsworth. "'Is it all true that Mr. Coverdale and Zenobia have been saying?' "'No,' Priscilla answered Hollingsworth, with his customary bluntness. "'They have neither of them spoken one true word yet.' "'Do you despise woman?' said Zenobia." "'Ah, Hollingsworth, that would be most ungrateful.' "'Despise her? No!' cried Hollingsworth, lifting his great shaggy head and shaking it at us, while his eyes glowed almost fiercely. "'She is the most admirable handiwork of God in her true place and character. Her place is at man's side, her office that of the sympathizer, the unreserved, unquestioning believer.' the recognition withheld in every other manner, but given in pity through woman's heart, lest man should utterly lose faith in himself, the echo of God's own voice pronouncing, It is well done. All the separate action of woman is, and ever has been, and always shall be, false, foolish, vain, destructive of her own best and holiest qualities, void of every good effect, and productive of intolerable mischiefs. Man is a wretch without woman, but woman is a monster, and thank heaven an almost impossible and hitherto imaginary monster, without man as her acknowledged principle. As true as I had once a mother whom I loved, were there any possible prospect of woman's taking the social stand which some of them, poor miserable abortive creatures, who only dream of such things because they have missed woman's peculiar happiness, or because nature made them really neither man nor woman, if there were a chance of their attaining the end which these petticoated monstrosities have in view, I would call upon my own sex to use its physical force, that unmistakable evidence of sovereignty, to scourge them back within their proper bounds. But it will not be needful." The heart of true womanhood knows where its own sphere is, and never seeks to stray beyond it. Never was mortal blessed, if blessing it were, with a glance of such entire acquiescence and unquestioning faith, happy in its completeness, as our little Priscilla unconsciously bestowed on Hollingsworth. She seemed to take the sentiment from his lips into her heart, and brood over it in perfect content. The very woman whom he pictured, the gentle parasite, the soft reflection of a more powerful existence, sat there at his feet. I looked at Zenobia, however, fully expecting her to resent, as I felt by the indignant ebullition of my own blood that she ought, this outrageous affirmation of what struck me as the intensity of masculine egotism. It centered everything in itself, and deprived woman of her very soul, her inexpressible and unfathomable all, to make it a mere incident in the great sum of man. 
Hollingsworth had boldly uttered what he and millions of despots like him really felt. Without intending it, he had disclosed the wellspring of all these troubled waters. Now, if ever, it surely behooved Zenobia to be the champion of her sex. But to my surprise and indignation, too, she only looked humbled. Some tears sparkled in her eyes, but they were wholly of grief, not anger. Well, be it so, was all she said. I at least have deep cause to think you right. Let man be but manly and godlike, and woman is only too ready to become to him what you say. I smiled somewhat bitterly, it is true, in contemplation of my own ill luck. How little did these two women care for me, who had freely conceded all their claims and a great deal more out of the fullness of my heart, while Hollingsworth, by some necromancy of his horrible injustice, seemed to have brought them both to his feet. Women almost invariably behave thus, thought I. What does the fact mean? Is it their nature, or is it at last the result of ages of compelled degradation? And in either case will it be possible ever to redeem them? An intuition now appeared to possess all the party that, for this time at least, there was no more to be said. With one accord we arose from the ground and made our way through the tangled undergrowth towards one of those pleasant wood-paths that wound among the overarching trees. Some of the branches hung so low as partly to conceal the figures that went before from those who followed. Priscilla had leaped up more lightly than the rest of us, and ran along in advance, with as much airy activity of spirit as was typified in the motion of a bird, which chanced to be flitting from tree to tree in the same direction as herself. Never did she seem so happy as that afternoon. She skipped, and could not help it, from very playfulness of heart. Zenobia and Hollingsworth went next, in close contiguity, but not with arm in arm. Now, just when they had passed the impending bough of the birch-tree, I plainly saw Zenobia take the hand of Hollingsworth in both her own, press it to her bosom, and let it fall again. The gesture was sudden and full of passion. The impulse had evidently taken her by surprise. It expressed all. Had Zenobia knelt before him or flung herself upon his breast and gasped out, I love you, Hollingsworth, I could not have been more certain of what it meant. They then walked onward as before. But, methought, as the declining sun threw Zenobia's magnified shadow along the path, I beheld it tremulous, and the delicate stem of the flower which she wore in her hair was likewise responsive to her agitation. Priscilla, through the medium of her eyes at least, could not possibly have been aware of the gesture above described, yet at that instant I saw her droop. The buoyancy, which just before had been so bird-like, was utterly departed. The life seemed to pass out of her, and even the substance of her figure to grow thin and grey. I almost imagined her a shadow, tiding gradually into the dimness of the wood. Her pace became so slow that Hollingsworth and Zenobia passed by, and I, without hastening my footsteps, overtook her. 
"'Come, Priscilla,' said I, looking her intently in the face, which was very pale and sorrowful. "'We must make haste after our friends. Do you feel suddenly ill? A moment ago you flitted along so lightly that I was comparing you to a bird. Now, on the contrary, it is as if you had a heavy heart and a very little strength to bear it with. Pray take my arm.' "'No,' said Priscilla, "'I do not think it would help me.' It is my heart, as you say, that makes me heavy, and I know not why. Just now I felt very happy. No doubt it was a kind of sacrilege in me to attempt to come within her maidenly mystery, but as she appeared to be tossed aside by her other friends, or carelessly let fall, like a flower which they had done with, I could not resist the impulse to take just one peep beneath her folded petals. "'Zenobia and yourself are dear friends of late,' I remarked. "'At first, that first evening when you came to us, "'she did not receive you quite so warmly as might have been wished.' "'I remember it,' said Priscilla. "'No wonder she hesitated to love me, "'who was then a stranger to her, "'and a girl of no grace or beauty, "'she being herself so beautiful.' "'But she loves you now, of course,' suggested I, "'and at this very instant you feel her to be your dearest friend?' "'Why do you ask me that question?' exclaimed Priscilla, "'as if frightened at the scrutiny into her feelings which I compelled her to make. "'It somehow put strange thoughts into my mind. "'But I do love Zenobia dearly. "'If she only loves me half as well I shall be happy.' "'How is it possible to doubt that, Priscilla?' I rejoined. "'But observe how pleasantly and happily Zenobia and Hollingsworth are walking together. "'I call it a delightful spectacle. "'It truly rejoices me that Hollingsworth has found so fit and affectionate a friend. "'So many people in the world mistrust him, "'so many disbelieve and ridicule, while hardly any do him justice, "'or acknowledge him for the wonderful man he is.' that it is really a blessed thing for him to have won the sympathy of such a woman as Zenobia. Any man might be proud of that. Any man, even if he be as great as Hollingsworth, might love so magnificent a woman. How very beautiful Zenobia is! And Hollingsworth knows it, too. There may have been some petty malice in what I said. Generosity is a very fine thing, at a proper time and within due limits— but it is an insufferable bore to see one man engrossing every thought of all the women, and leaving his friend to shiver in outer seclusion, without even the alternative of solacing himself with what the more fortunate individual has rejected. Yes, it was out of a foolish bitterness of heart that I had spoken. "'Go on before,' said Priscilla abruptly, and with true feminine imperiousness, which heretofore I had never seen her exercise." "'It pleases me best to loiter along by myself. "'I do not walk so fast as you.' "'With her hand she made a little gesture of dismissal. "'It provoked me, yet on the whole was the most bewitching thing "'that Priscilla had ever done. "'I obeyed her and strolled moodily homeward, "'wondering, as I had wondered a thousand times already, "'how Hollingsworth meant to dispose of these two hearts.' which, plainly to my perception, and as I could not but now suppose to his, he had engrossed into his own huge egotism. There was likewise another subject hardly less fruitful of speculation. 
In what attitude did Zenobia present herself to Hollingsworth? Was it in that of a free woman, with no mortgage on her affections nor claimant to her hand, but fully at liberty to surrender both, in exchange for the heart and hand which she apparently expected to receive? But was it a vision that I had witnessed in the wood? Was Westervelt a goblin? Were those words of passion and agony which Zenobia had uttered in my hearing a mere stage declamation? Were they formed of a material lighter than common air? Or, supposing them to bear sterling weight, was it a perilous and dreadful wrong which she was meditating towards herself and Hollingsworth? Arriving nearly at the farmhouse, I looked back over the long slope of pasture-land, and beheld them standing together in the light of sunset, just on the spot where, according to the gossip of the community, they meant to build their cottage. Priscilla, alone and forgotten, was lingering in the shadow of the wood. End of chapter 14